reading from Second uh, Peter 1, 12 to 21st verse. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by the way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the pathetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay uh, attention to as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by the act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, may you open our eyes, may you open our hearts to see the majesty of King Jesus. May every knee bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, he is King, to the glory of our God and Father. May that be the posture of our hearts, but as we go from here, hearing your word, may it also be the posture of our lives May we go as men and women of the king to do his work and to live under his reign. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yesterday, the world witnessed something it hadn't seen in nearly 70 years. A royal coronation. The coronation of a new king of England, Scotland, Wales, and Berwick-upon-Tweed which is, it's a town, Berwick-upon-Tweed is a town on the border between England and Scotland that has changed hands so many times, no one knows who it belongs to anymore. Uh, we've been there to, to Berwick when we lived in England. It's a nice place. You should visit it. But yesterday, the world watched the coronation of King Charles. King Charles is the third to go by that name. The second King Charles wasn't such a great guy. Uh, he put Baptist ministers like John Bunyan in prison and ejected more than 2,000 faithful Anglican pastors from their pulpits. 
and is perhaps the reason the Pew family left Wales for the New World in the 1670s at the, the midpoint of his reign. Charles II wasn't a great guy. Charles I, on the other hand, was so bad that he started a civil war, which he lost and then lost his head after that. So who knows what Charles III will turn out to be. Uh, He has a lot to live up to, big shoes to fill. In the coronation yesterday, King Charles III traveled by carriage from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey, the place where kings and queens have been crowned since William the Conqueror in 1066. At Westminster Abbey, the ceremonies, the symbols of kingship, they go back hundreds of years, were all enacted again yesterday. The Archbishop of Canterbury was there to put the royal crown upon Charles's head. The scepter of kingly power was put in one hand, the gloved hand, and the scepter of kingly mercy was placed in the other. The king sat upon the coronation chair, King Edward's chair, which was built in 1296 to house the Stone of Destiny, a stone which the Scottish kings were crowned upon, effectively saying to the Scots, this is your king now, whether you like it or not. All the pomp, all the circumstance, all the pageantry were originally designed to invest the king with power and regal majesty in the eyes of the people who witnessed his coronation. Now, none of us were there yesterday for the king's coronation. None of us would have been invited in the first place. I didn't get my invitation. Did you? No. None of us were eyewitnesses, but we did hear about it. We did read about it. An account of the coronation came to us secondhand through news reports and online articles and personal conversations. None of us today dispute that there is a crowned king in England because we weren't there to witness his coronation. None of us dispute it. We received it as a matter of fact based upon authority, the authority of witnesses who were there recording it all for us who weren't there. Those eyewitnesses are reporting, they're posting, they're writing articles about what they saw about all the majesty of the coronation service. In our text today, in 2 Peter, Peter says that's exactly what he is doing as well. Verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord, our King, Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says, we are not clever tale fabricators about the Lord, about the king. We are merely witnesses. We were there. We are witnesses of his majesty. We unexpectedly found ourselves witnessing the coronation of creation's king. We saw heaven's royal power revealed and heaven's king dressed in splendor. And we now simply are relating to you what we have heard 
and what we've seen. Just like someone might write to you about being there for the coronation of the King of England, we, Peter says, we are writing to you about the coronation of the King of Kings. We were there. We saw it. Our words are the words of eyewitnesses. But they're even more than that. Much more than that. The words of the New Testament witnesses that they write to us are the words of the king himself. We're going to begin at the end of our passage today and see the first of three points. Here's the first thing I want you to see. The authority of the king's words. Verses 20 and 21. The authority of the king's words. Look at the end of our passage. Verse 20 says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever been made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Think about the king. Not Charles III. He's more of a symbolic figurehead. His words don't carry a lot of authority. Instead, think about the words of a king in Jesus' day or in medieval times or basically in any other period of history besides modern day. When a king spoke, his words carried a certain authority. The king could declare, the deer in these woods are protected. They are the king's deer. Or he could say, this bridge shall be built and paid for out of the royal treasury or by taxing the local villages who will use it. And it would be done. It would be hard to imagine the king's subjects disobeying his word and then coming before him, justifying themselves by arguing for their own interpretation of his words. Now, by dear, I didn't understand you to mean all the fawns as well. Or when you said pay tax for the bridge, it seemed far more fair to exempt this particular group and have this other group pay taxes more heavily. Can you see the king's subjects arguing with the king over their interpretation of his words? What's the king going to say to that? He's going to say your interpretation doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The king's words mean what the king intended for them to mean. It doesn't matter how you want to spin them. The king's words carry an authority that it is not wise to bend or twist. You are not free to reinterpret them to your liking. It will not go well for us with the king if we do. As it is with the words of the king... Peter says in verse 20, so it is with the scripture. The Bible comes to us with authority. These are the words of the king. We are not free to reimagine them to fit our times. We are not free to bend them in order to do what we want and live how we want to live. We will be tempted to. We will be tempted to bend and reinterpret God's word to better fit into this cultural moment that we find ourselves in. We will be tempted to ask ourselves the serpent's question. Has God really said? 
has he really said? Like the original lie, Satan would have us questioning the word of our king. Did the king really say? Does he really know what he's talking about when it comes to gender issues? Does the king really know what he's talking about when it comes to sexual ethics? Can't we just reinterpret those things? Can't we just reinterpret those things for a new day? There are church leaders. There are denominations who say we can and we should. We've got to reinterpret doctrine to better fit our times. That's the only way we'll win the next generation and keep the church relevant. A new generation needs a new interpretation. I earnestly hope this morning that you can see the problems with that way of thinking. There are multiple serious problems. There is, first of all, the problem of arrogance. It would be the height of arrogance to think that this generation is the first in two millennia of church history to rightly interpret the words of the king. You can be sure that if we reinterpret the scripture in a way that no Christian has ever believed before us, the odds of us being right and everyone else in history being wrong are next to none. This is what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Thinking everyone who came before you didn't know what they were talking about, got it all wrong. There is the problem of arrogance. But there's also the problem of motivation. What pushes people to a new revised interpretation of Scripture on something like sexual ethics? Isn't it the push and pull of the culture? We want the world's praise and applause instead of its ridicule. Isn't it the pull of our own desires? We want to do things and affirm things that the king says, no, don't do it. That's not for your flourishing. When I see people caving in and changing how they interpret God, what God says, I'm asking myself, okay, what's the motivation here? Is this swimming against the culture's current, or is this swimming with it? What's the motivation? There's a danger of worldly motivations here, but there's also this ultimate danger. One day, we will have to stand before the king. On that day, our interpretation won't matter. It won't be worth a hill of beans. It won't provide us any cover for our disobedience. We had the king's word, and we are responsible for how we treated it, for how we bent it to fit what we wanted. I wouldn't want to be one of those on that day who willfully reinterpreted the king's word to achieve my own end. Paul says there will be some who will be saved, but all that they did will be burned up in the judgment of the king. Now, we do serve a gracious king. And it's actually amazing the number of things we can get wrong and he still bless us. 
and we still be valuable in his service. But King Jesus did say that he will remove the lampstands from the churches who go off the rails regarding his word. You go off the rails and you get demoted. You're no longer a church. You are a social club only. Why would Jesus do that? It's because we knew what we had. He told us again and again what we had, that this word came to us directly from the king. That's what Peter tells us in verse 21, that no prophecy, and that's what the word of God is, speaking words from God, no prophecy was ever made by the act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Every thus saith the Lord, Every word in Scripture didn't originate with the human authors, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is what theologians call divine inspiration. Divine inspiration. We believe, here at ABC, we believe that God so superintended the writing of Scripture that the words written by human authors were the exact words he intended for them to write. God can do that, right? He's powerful enough to do that. The words that were recorded for us here come to us with all the authority of heaven's king behind them. We know what we have. We know we have the authoritative words of the king of kings right here. This is the view of scripture that all of the Bible is calling us to adopt. But this is the one view of the Bible that secular academics can never recognize. For those academics, reading the Bible is a study in anthropology, not theology. You know the difference? Anthropology is the study of man. Theology is the study of God. It's not the study of what God says to man when they come to the Bible. It's a study of what man says about God. To secular scholars, these words are just a history a very human history of what certain people in particular times thought about God and thought about themselves. It's anthropology, the study of man. Now, to be fair to those academics, much of the study of world religions is anthropology. When you study the religions of ancient Egyptians or Greeks or Romans, you are studying what those people thought about themselves and about the gods of their imagination. Most studying of religion is anthropology. There is, however, some world religions that claim to be revealed by angels. You know this. Satan may have had a very direct hand in their content. But by and large, most studying of world religions is anthropology. It can only go from anthropology to proper theology if... Verse 21 is true. If this doesn't come from the act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. If what we have here isn't the product of human will, but the Spirit of God superintending everything, then the words written here are, in fact, the words of creation's king. Here we have recorded for us the king's decree. 
which brings us to our second point. And back to the start of our passage. In verses 12 through 15, we see our second heading. It's this, the need to remember the king's decrees. The need to remember the king's decrees. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at that time, after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. If this book contains the decrees of our king, then it is incumbent upon us not just to rightly understand what the king says, but to actually remember and do what the king says. Peter says that this is his role. This is part of the reason he is here. He is here to remind God's people of what the king has said and what the king has done. In this way, Peter is like a herald. You know, a herald in medieval society. It's his job to get the word out. This is the king's decree. Like a herald of a king, Peter goes around reminding people what the king has said. Notice what Peter says in verse 12. He says, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. Just because you already know something doesn't mean that it lives in the forefront of your mind like it should. We are, after all, monumental forgetters, are we not? For a truth to become part of you, you probably need to hear it more than once, right? You need to be reminded of it. You need continual reminders. You need to be fed that reality again and again in a way that captures your mind your heart, your imagination. In truth, verse 12 sums up a lot of my job. Verse 12. As a pastor who has the privilege of preaching week by week, I am always reminding you of things, of things that you probably already know. I'm not trying to tell you anything new Sunday by Sunday, if I'm coming up with things that are genuinely new, if I'm an innovator, then I've almost certainly got things wrong, right? If you or I think that we are the first in history to rightly understand the word of our king, we are almost certainly wrong. Theological innovation is not what you want. It's not what I'm supposed to be doing as your pastor. I'm supposed to do what I'm supposed to do week by week is this, to take a truth you already know, but to express it in a way that captures your imagination anew and afresh. My goal every Sunday for myself and for you is to have our minds just a little bit more renewed by what we already know is true. My goal is to have our hearts just a little bit more rewired by a truth that you may have known all your life. You're here. 
and you've read the Bible. You know the word of the king. Good. But you still need the continual reminders in order for that word to capture your heart and imagination. So that in the moment of temptation, the truth that you need is there. Ready. Locked and loaded. Ready to do battle. Peter sees this as his role. Stirring you up by way of reminder. That's Peter's role. And it's also my role. And guess what? It's your role as well. In small groups, in table discussions, as you parent your kids, as you counsel your classmates, your coworkers, you are to stir up their minds and hearts by reminding them of the truth. That's your task as well as mine. And 1 Corinthians says that this is when the unbeliever will come into our meeting and be convicted and say, surely God is among you. Surely God's in this place. It's when we are all speaking the word of God to one another. When we are all stirring up one another and reminding one another of the wise words of our king. Drew, who we just baptized. Drew Goodwin. Uh, we baptized him today. He shared with me that this was a big part of his testimony, seeing God's wisdom on display in the people here as the word of God was spoken and applied to real life. This is happening, folks. It's happening among us. Let's pray that we might excel still more in reminding each other of these great truths. Let's strive diligently to stir one another up with imagination-capturing reminders of what our king has decreed in his word. When we do this, we will show the world how good it is to live under the reign of King Jesus. We will show the world this, verse 16, that we do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Here's the third and final thing I want you to see. The revealing of the king's majesty. Verses 16 through 19. The revealing of the king's majesty. We weren't following cleverly devised tales. We made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For... When he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. You all know what Peter is referring to here, right? You know what he's talking about. He is describing a moment we are told about in the Gospels. The moment that Peter, James, and John see Jesus transfigured on a mountain, revealing his true glory and majesty. You can read about that moment in each of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Each of these accounts always directly follows this saying from Jesus. Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you that there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until 
they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Then, in each gospel account, the very next thing is always the transfiguration. Always the transfiguration. As if to say, here is the fulfillment of that promise. Truly, I say to you, some standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man, the King coming in his kingdom. And the very next verse says, six days later. Matthew, Mark say six days later. Luke says eight days later, but I think he's not counting as the Hebrews would count days, but as the Gentiles would count. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Mark says that his clothes were whiter than any launderer on earth could whiten them. That's a good description. And, Matthew says, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Luke adds that Peter really doesn't know what he's saying at this point. Um, While, but Matthew says, while he was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up. And do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. If this scene is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise, that some of his disciples would not taste death until they saw his kingdom coming, the king come, then this moment up on the mountain is like attending an unexpected coronation. That's what the disciples were doing. They didn't get the invite. They didn't know they were invited, but the coronation happened, and they saw it. On this mountaintop, Jesus is revealed in his majesty, kingly majesty and splendor, his face shining like the sun. The king has come. The king has revealed himself finally in all of his state, in all of his majesty. The king has come, and he is bringing his kingdom with him. There was a moment in yesterday's coronation that you might have missed. The cameras intentionally looked away because you were not supposed to see it. It was the moment of the king's anointing. This moment is supposed to be so special that it is shielded from view. They, they literally bring out the shields uh, and, and keep you from seeing this. A covering is brought out around the king to prevent people from from seeing what's happening. Only the Archbishop of Canterbury and a few others are allowed to be behind the veil and participate in the anointing of the king as God's servant. It may be entirely unintentional, but there are some obvious parallels here. Jesus brought just a select few with him into this special moment. The special moment of the revealing of his kingly majesty. Better than an archbishop and a cathedral warden, Moses and Elijah appear 
to be with Jesus. Peter, James, John, they were there. Only a few were invited for this moment where the veil is pulled back and the glory of the king shines forth. But the time is coming when the veil will be pulled back for everyone. Everyone will behold the king as he really is. Remember, remember how I granted that every other religion in the world might just be a study of anthropology? But if God really has sent his beloved son into the world, what should we do? God tells us we should listen to him. Listen to him. Everyone recognizes, scholars recognize, that if the incarnation is true, if God really has come to us in the person of Jesus, then we should listen to him above every other religious teacher who has ever lived. His word trumps all others because his majesty exceeds all others. And his majesty is a majesty that calls forth a response from us. Look at verse 19. Here's the response. So, we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. In yesterday's coronation, the subjects of the king came forward, touching his crown, kneeling, kissing his ring, swearing allegiance to the king. I do become your liege man in life and limb, so help me God. Peter says that our response to Jesus' coronation should be something very similar. The prophetic word about God's king has been made even more sure by Christ's coronation on a mountaintop. Witnessed by Peter, James, and John. They saw a heavenly coronation. They saw the king revealed in his glory. All that God has said, all the words of the king spoken through the prophets, they are all true and verified by the coronation they experienced. You do well now to swear allegiance to this king. The king who calls himself the bright morning star. You do well to make Allegiance to this king rise up in your heart. Come and kiss the ring. Come and bow the knee. Come and live under his good reign. Live under his scepter. In Jesus, the scepter of justice and mercy have met. The rod of justice fell upon the king himself at the cross. So that we, his subjects, might live under the scepter of God's mercy. Like the day dawned for King Charles's coronation, the day will dawn for this king to come again. His reign and his kingdom has had its coronation already. We only await now its full consummation when the king returns. But before that day dawns, you need to recognize the authority of the king and his words. You need to remember the king's decrees and live under his good reign. You need to swear allegiance to this king now before the day comes 
and he appears to all the way he appeared to Peter on this mountain. I don't quite know what to expect of King Charles III. If I'm honest, I guess I expect to be disappointed. I also don't completely know what to expect of King Jesus. But I do know this. I know that I will not be disappointed. It is not possible for this king to fall short. There will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. He will sit on the throne of David and reign over his people like a shepherd forever. All who put their hope in the king of kings will never be disappointed. Four, we do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Father, may we this morning, through the eyes of faith, be witnesses of the majesty of the king. We have heard of it. We have heard his coronation spoken to us through his word. May we crown him in our hearts. May we bow the knee to Jesus, swearing loyalty, undying to a king who has died for us. May our hearts be ever true, more and more true, day by day, by your grace, by your spirit's work to this king. May we hear his words. May we not ever bend them, twist them to our own ends. May we know that we will stand before the king one day giving an account as stewards, as servants. Lord, may we be the king's men and women now. May we go out into the world showing a watching world how good it is to live under his reign. Lord, we ask that you would work this in us. May it be our response today, right now, in this moment. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.